Section 16 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11. The Senate of the Republic. The Senate and the People of Rome, SPQR, that is, Senatus Populusque Romanus, was the official designation of the Roman Commonwealth. The precedence occupied in this title by the Senate is indicative of the prominence of that assembly in the public life of Rome. The Senate was indeed the soul of that mighty body. The greatness of Rome is to be ascribed not so much to the eminent genius of a few men, nor to the civic virtues and martial spirit of the people, as to the ability displayed at all times by this assembly, which united within itself whatever of worth or talent, of experience and political wisdom the whole nation possessed. The Senate had neither executive nor legislative nor judicial power. It was merely a consultative body free to give advice to the magistrates when asked for it, but unable either to give advice unasked or to enforce its acceptance. Its influence consisted in this, that it really represented the intelligence of the people and generally gave a correct expression of the national will. The normal number of senators is supposed to have been 300 in the kingly period. They were, of course, all patricians. The last king is said to have reduced the Senate in numbers and to have disregarded its advice. On the establishment of the Republic, the Senate regained its old position. Brutus, or according to some statements, Valerius, added many new senators and thus restored the former standard. Our informants are of opinion that these new senators were taken from among the plebeians, and whilst some think that they were by their nomination raised to the rank of patricians, others fancy that they remained plebeians, that the Senate, therefore, from the commencement of the Republic, contained a considerable number of plebeian members. This is, however, a notion which cannot be entertained. It is refuted by all that we know of the early constitutional struggles between patricians and plebeians, the plebeians were for a long time after in a depressed condition, excluded from all participation in the government of the Republic. It took them a century and a half before they were admitted to the consulship, and two hundred years elapsed before they were declared eligible for any priestly offices. Up to 445 BC they were excluded from intermarriage with the patricians, when, after a severe struggle and an armed insurrection, tribunes of the plebs were created to act as patrons of the plebeians and to ward off the worst form of oppression, these tribunes were not allowed access to the Senate, but had for a long time to take their seats outside the sacred precincts and to shout their interceding veto through the open door. How is it credible that such an assembly should have received a number of plebeian members in the very first year of the Republic. To believe such an extraordinary statement, we should require better evidence than we have. But even supposing that Brutus or Valerius completed the number of senators from the plebs, these new plebeian members must have died in course of time, and therefore if no law was enacted to provide for plebeian successors, the Senate would in a short time have become purely patrician again. Of such a law we have no trace, nor is it reported that the alleged act of Brutus or Valerius was ever repeated. We hear of no election of plebeian senators, nor of the presence of plebeians in the Senate during the early period of the Republic. 
the Senate is constantly represented as the champion of the patrician order without a dissentient voice. It is therefore an absolute impossibility that plebeians should have been received into it at the time in question. The arguments adduced against the possible reception of plebeians into the Senate by Brutus or Valerius do not tell with equal force against the assumption that plebeians were indeed received, but were at the same time raised to patrician rank. Yet even this seems improbable, for such a precedent as the wholesale creation of a number of new patrician families from the body of plebeians could not have failed to be followed in after times and would have led to drafting off the foremost leaders of the plebeians into the patrician ranks. It would have been such a weakening of the plebeian opposition that the struggle would have lost its asperity, and tradition would not have failed to commemorate some instances of transition from the lower to the higher order of citizens. But not a single instance is alleged. Nay, it appears to have been impossible in law. We are therefore compelled to assume that the new senators created by Brutus or Valerius were members of patrician houses. This assumption agrees with all we know of the subsequent history. It is certain that the revolution which overthrew the kings led to a restoration of aristocratic, that is, patrician government. It was a revolution not in favor of the people, that is, the mass of the lower ranks, but, as we have already remarked, it was rather directed against their interests. The plebeians were so far from being benefited by it that they had to rise in open rebellion to obtain not equality with the patricians, not a share in the government, but simple protection from arbitrary and illegal treatment. The Senate during this time, and for a long time after, was most assuredly patrician throughout, and had never been tainted by the presence of even ennobled plebeians. The new senators added by Brutus or Valerius are said to have been called conscripti, in distinction from the older members who were simply called patres. Thus it is said arose the title patres conscripti, conscript fathers, which was the official designation of the Roman senators. For patres conscripti, we are told, is contracted from patres et conscripti. This explanation of the name falls to the ground with the assumption that the new members differed in rank from the older. It is an attempt of some antiquarian to account for the peculiar title of the Senate, and cannot be based upon a genuine tradition. We must explain the title differently. We know what not all the analysts knew, that the word patres meant originally not senators but members of the patrician community as distinct from the plebeians. Hence not all the patres in strictness of speech, the lords or masters of families, were senators, and to distinguish the latter from the body of patres they were called patres conscripti, that is, fathers whose names were entered, conscripta, on the lists of the senators. The Roman Senate was a consultative body of men picked from the mass of the community and accustomed to meet periodically for the discussion of public affairs. It resembled, therefore, in many respects, the representative assemblies of modern times, and upon the whole exercised a similar influence upon the direction of affairs. But in detail, the difference is perhaps more striking than the resemblance, and as we are too apt to form our ideas of the past from the analogies of the present, it is worthwhile to notice some of the most striking features in which the Roman Senate differed from modern parliaments. The Senate was not a representative assembly in the strict sense of the word. 
the members were not elected by the suffrage of the people, nor did they sit and vote for particular divisions of the nation or territory. They were nominated by the executive government, that is, by the consuls, and after the establishment of the censorship in 443 BC, by the censors. Only in a limited degree and in an indirect way had the people any influence in the nomination of senators, inasmuch as they elected the electors, and as the latter were bound to call into the Senate men who enjoyed the confidence of the people, in the first instance, therefore men who had discharged public offices. In the earlier period of the Republic, when the two consuls were the only annual magistrates, the vacancies in the Senate caused by death could not all be filled up by ex-magistrates, and even when the number of annual magistrates was considerably increased, the Senate could only be kept at its normal standard by the nomination of men who had not previously discharged a public office. Yet those senators who had passed the official chairs were always the leaders in the Senate, and it appears that the other senators had only the right to vote, and not that of justifying their vote by set speeches. As the senators held their seats for life, or at least during good behavior, and as the Senate accordingly was never renewed in toto by a dissolution, it constituted a permanent undying body, only receiving fresh blood from time to time, as old men dropped off and others were substituted in their place. They may in short be said to have held life peerages. This circumstance naturally gave to the Senate the character of great stability and decided conservatism. New ideas could make their way but slowly in such an assembly, and the people had no means of pushing measures of reform through a body which could not, like a modern parliament, be reconstructed on new principles at a general election. At the same time, the traditions of bygone times, the constitutional precedents, which in the absence of a written constitution contained the public law of the republic, could not be better preserved in their purity than by such an assembly. If we take into consideration that not only the consuls after their year of office, but also pontiffs and other priests were life members of the Senate, we can understand how the knowledge of many old institutions, and even a dim recollection of the events that led to their establishment, might be recorded and handed down for generations before it was consigned to writing. End of section 16